Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Today's episode is part two of our series on the Taiping Rebellion. And when we last left Hong Xuquan, the leader of the rebellion, he was proclaiming all sorts of highly radical things like he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ, Confucius was Satan, and he was advocating for an upturning of the religious, the cultural, and the political underpinnings of the Qing dynasty. The Qing dynasty, which had numerous troubles in the middle 1800s, including natural disasters, famine, and the Opium Wars. Today is the continuation of this story, and one thing which I do feel like I need to mention is that today's podcast is necessarily condensed. If I were to actually go into all the details of the Taiping Rebellion uh, on this show, we would have a very, very long podcast indeed. It would be several hours long. What I'm talking about today is something as long and complex as the American Civil War, and I'm going to do it in less than 30 minutes. Here we go. I personally wonder how many of the Taiping rebels actually bought into Hong Zhuquan's religious beliefs. Those beliefs, they seem a bit hard to swallow, and the wholesale rejection of traditional Chinese religion and the adoption of a new form of Christianity, it's extreme. I wonder if that was actually compelling the average Taiping rebel, or if they were really fighting because the Qing dynasty had failed in the face of so many challenges in the middle 1800s. I'm inclined to believe in the latter. Or at least I want to believe that. I'd like to believe that people are more inclined to take up arms in reaction to natural disasters, foreign invasion, and war than because they are inspired by a guy who thinks he's related to Jesus. Whatever the reason that individual typing rebels fought against the Qing, though, they did so in great numbers. And what had been Hong Quan preaching to his fellow Hakka, it turned into essentially a large rebel state in southern China. Hong and his god-worshippers soon controlled an area that stretched between modern Shanghai and modern Hong Kong, though they did not control either of those important cities specifically. Still, the Taiping, they all but formed a rival state in southern China. It was not a state that was recognized by the international community or by China, but for all intents and purposes, they did found a kingdom. The Qing, they no longer had any meaningful control over nearly half of the country, and they were embroiled in a great war against the heavenly kingdom of great peace. Hong Quan withdrew from actually running things in this kingdom in 1953. The Taiping rebels, they took Nanjing, and they renamed it Tianjing, or heavenly capital, and Hong took up in an old viceroy's palace. Uh, the palace he lived in, it was not at all like the type of palace that Jesus of Nazareth, his supposed brother, would have lived in. It was opulent, excessive, it was staffed exclusively by women, and Hong was the only man allowed in the residence. This was in stark contrast to a lot of the Taiping rebels who had taken vows to stay celibate and separated from the opposite sex, even married couples. So he had access to a considerable amount of concubines and was living much more like a monarch than a messiah. Hong also 
appointed several sub-kings, five of them. He appointed a king of the north, of the south, of the east, and the west, and the wing, because, I suppose, he ran out of cardinal directions, and there was a fifth guy that he wanted to make a king. Relations between Hong and the various other kings were not always harmonious. Uh, eventually, he did have one of them killed. And the guy who actually started running things for the Taiping was not Hong, it was not the various kings, it was Hong Zhuquan's cousin, Hong Renggang. And by the way, I do want to note that I'm probably egregiously mispronouncing Chinese names, sorry about that. And Hong Renggang essentially became the Taiping Kingdom's prime minister. Now, Hong Zhuquan is fairly obviously insane, but I don't think that's the case with Hong Renggang. Ringan wanted the Taipings to reach out to the wider world. The Qing dynasty had pursued a policy of isolation and non-engagement with foreigners, which led to the Opium Wars, and Hong Ringan wanted the Taipings to form a very different sort of China. Unlike his cousin, Hong was more of a mainstream Protestant. He was a bit more tolerant, a bit less radical, and he wanted China to modernize, have things like railroads, international trade, and he thought that an essential thing to do was to reach out to foreign powers and enlist their help. He believed that that would be the key to the Taiping success. Hong encouraged other Chinese to stop referring to foreigners as barbarians, and he put out a call to various foreign countries for aid. After all, Hong, he was a fairly mainstream Protestant. Many of these other countries, also filled with mainstream Protestants, why wouldn't they achieve some kind of common ground from that? So he's pursuing international recognition, diplomatic relations, trade, possible military assistance, and he doesn't get any of that. He gets missionaries. The only Westerners who paid much attention to Hong Ringan's call for contact with the Taiping, they were people who had a religious agenda or were curious about these new Christians in southern China, and they, you can imagine, did not exactly have a lot of pull with their various governments. Foreign powers, they did not elect to throw in with the Taiping. In fact, they went in the exact opposite direction. Even though Britain had previously warred with the Qing dynasty during the Opium Wars, and famously had burned down the Summer Palace, Britain would, in a strange and kind of ironic turn of events, go right back around inside with the Qing against the Taipings. Britain saw China as a potential market for its goods. That was the entire reason for the Opium War, after all. And Britain ultimately decided that the Qing dynasty were the ones who could actually rule China effectively. Um, according to historian Stephen Platt, author of Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, a book about the Taiping Rebellion, foreign intervention, particularly British foreign intervention, didn't necessarily have anything to do with opium. According to Platt, the Taipings bought opium almost as much as the Qing did, despite Hong Zhu Quan's prohibition on things like alcohol, tobacco, and opium. So it's not because Britain is still wanting to sell China opium. Rather, the Qing were established. They had existing infrastructure, they had existing bureaucracy, and they were experienced, and the British knew what they were dealing with. The Taiping, meanwhile, were a completely unknown quantity. They were an insurgent force nominally led by a man who thought he was the son of God. 
despite Britain's very recent enmity with the Qing, they didn't want that dynasty to fall. They wanted to be able to have predictable relations with it. In fact, there were some Britons who worried that if China were to fall into chaos, it would be Britain's moral obligation to colonize it. And that would be an endeavor even more complicated and expensive than colonizing India. No one wanted that. So Britain is pursuing the status quo in China. It's not going to reach out to new Christian soldiers rising up against a Manchurian dynasty, and the Taipings learned about this the hard way. They sent an expedition to Shanghai to make contact with the British there, and much to the Taiping's surprise, the British and the other foreigners began shooting at them when the Taipings arrived. The Taipings thought that this was some kind of mistake, and they were initially surprised and bewildered when the foreigners, their fellow Christians, the ones that they wanted to reach out to, opened fire upon them. But it was not a mistake. The Qing had united with Britain, its former adversary, to crush this populist movement growing up in southern China. And there are two figures that particularly stand out in this military campaign to eliminate the Taiping. The first is a British officer named Charles Gordon, who would eventually be nicknamed Chinese Gordon, who headed up a fighting force that probably has the best army name in the history of army names, and it was called the Ever-Victorious Army. Gordon worked with the Qing to modernize their army's weapons, tactics, and technology, and he turned the Manchurian dynasty's army into the kind of military force that Britain and other European powers had been using to subjugate colonized people around the globe. And soon Gordon and the Qing, they were using the ever-victorious army to subjugate the Taiping, winning battle after battle after battle against numerous but less well-trained and less well-equipped peasants. The other figure that stands out in this conflict on the Manchurian side is Zheng Guofan. And again, I'm almost certainly mispronouncing his name. Uh, Zheng, he was a Han Chinese general who raised the Jiang army. It was a provincial army of his fellow Han Chinese that he raised to fight against the Taipings. And this Jiang army, it was loyal to him and only him. Zheng, or more specifically Zheng's soldiers, they weren't fighting on behalf of the Manchurian dynasty. They were fighting for their commander. Zheng Guofan, he has something of a checkered reputation in China now because he was a Han general with a Han army who raised his Han army to crush a popular Han uprising. Uh, his reputation in China in the 1900s was something of a race traitor. There are complicated ethnic and racial politics at work here, and Zheng was pretty much demonized in the 20th century because a lot of Han thought that he was on the wrong side of this conflict. I, as an outsider, kind of feel bad for him. Curiously, he has this army, which is loyal to him, and after this war is over, spoiler alert, the Manchurians, the Qing, and the British, they win. Zheng had a giant army that did not necessarily care for the Manchurians. It is conceivable that his Xi'an army could have walked into Beijing, taken the capital, 
and Zheng Guofan could have sat himself on the dragon throne and become China's new emperor. But he did not do that. Instead, this extraordinarily successful general, he seems to have been troubled and sickened by the rebellion, and after it was over, he encouraged his sons to stay away from the bloody business of both military and political life. Instead, he told them to become scholars and have nothing to do with either statecraft or war. Charles Gordon, Zheng Yuofan, and the Qing forces, they fought effectively against the Taipings for years. And again, I don't have time in this show to go into all the intricacies of the various battles. What's important is that after years of conflict, the combined British and Qing forces had the Taiping capital surrounded in 1864. This uprising of peasants, of religious converts, and Han Chinese, angry at the Manchurian dynasty, they had not been able to get any meaningful outside assistance, and now they were under siege. The supposed messiah, Hong Quan was not long for this world, and there are competing stories about Hong Quan's death. And I will admit, Hong Quan, being a crazy person, is a big part of the reason why I wanted to do this pair of episodes. I am kind of attracted to people who have crazy delusions, and the competing stories about his death reflect that. One is that this man, who claimed to be the son of God and brother of Jesus, lost his faith and killed himself as his heavenly kingdom fell around him. Another story about how he died is that even at the end of it all, Hong still believed that God would provide for him and his people. One story goes is that he said, despite being surrounded by enemies and cut off from outside supplies and aid, manna would fall from heaven for him and his, just as it had done for the ancient Israelites. Obviously, no bread fell from the sky, but Hong determined that God had sent something, uprooted a weed, declared that to be the manna from heaven, ate it, ended up getting poisoned, and died because of the supposed manna. Still another story is that the self-proclaimed Messiah died of mere food poisoning from eating rotten supplies inside of his besieged palace. In any case, the man who claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus Christ did not die in a glorious way. There was no martyrdom or final battle or blaze of glory. There wasn't even an audience as there had been on Golgotha. Still, as supposed messiahs go, Hong Zhu Quan did pretty well. There are all kinds of cult leaders, street preachers, and maniacs who declare themselves to be God, the Son of God, the special messenger of God. Most of them don't get kingdoms and palaces and concubines. Hong Xu Quan did. So in the grand scheme of things, if you're grading him in comparison to other crazy people, he did fairly well. After the collapse of the capital, after the death of the Messiah, the Taiping Rebellion began to collapse. Isolated rebel groups would still fight against Qing forces as late as 1871, but it was over. The Qing dynasty, though, was doomed. At the beginning of the 20th century, a generation later, it would of course fall to nationalist and communist forces in a revolution nearly as, if not even bloodier, than the Taiping Rebellion. And speculating about history and might have beens is always a dicey proposition. But there's a passage about this that I wanted to quote at length from Stephen Platt's book on the rebellion. 
Again, it's called Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom. And it's a section where he quotes Ito Hirobumi, a former Japanese prime minister who excoriates Britain for intervening in the Taiping Rebellion. Quote, In an interview with a British reporter in 1909, Japan's elder statesman Ito Hirobumi, four-time prime minister and chief architect of the 19th century reform movement, took to the violence just beginning to unfold in China and declared it to be long overdue. In his opinion, the new Chinese revolutionaries were merely finishing the work that the Taiping had started 50 years earlier, and in which he firmly believed would have been successful if left to their own devices. Now Platt is quoting Hirobumi, quote, The greatest mistake you Western people, and more especially you English people, did in all of your dealings with China was to help the Manchus in putting down the Taiping Rebellion, unquote. Back to Platt. Ito echoed the many observers from the time of the war who had argued on behalf of neutrality, who had maintained, ultimately in vain, that Britain must stay out because warfare in China was part of a natural process of dynastic chain that must follow through to its end. Quoting Hirobumi again, There can be little doubt that the Manchu dynasty had reached the end of its proper tether when the Taiping Rebellion occurred, and by preventing the overthrow, Gordon and his ever-victorious army arrested a normal and healthy process of nature. Nothing the Manchus had done since then affords the slightest evidence that they deserve to be saved, and when they fall as fall they must before very long, the upheaval will be all the more violent and all the more protracted from having been so long and unduly postponed. Unquote. I have no idea if Hirobumi was right or not in the broad sense, but he was right in the immediate sense. In 1911, the Qing dynasty would fall, but I hesitate to call the Taiping Rebellion, which killed over 20 million people, part of a normal and healthy process of nature. Maybe Hirobumi was mistaken. Maybe had the Taipings been allowed to overthrow the Qing dynasty, maybe they would have formed a totalitarian religious state based on an extremist ideology just as nightmarish and just as dystopian as anything from the 20th century. I am inclined to lean in that direction. As a secular modern person, I find the Taipings sort of terrifying, with their complete and wholesale burning of traditional Chinese religion and culture and replacing it with a new radical form of Christianity. Or, or maybe not. Maybe after Hong Zhuquan died, cooler heads like Hong Ringan, again, he was more of a mainline Protestant, and he ended up getting executed and never actually recanted his ideals, which, which I actually find sort of admirable in a doomed and romantic kind of way. Maybe cooler heads like him would have simply made a modern state, albeit one with a curious origin story. There's no way to know. What we do know, though, is that the heavenly kingdom of great peace was anything but and that, one way or another, at its hands, or at national and communistic hands, the Qing dynasty was destined to fall and destined to lose the mandate of heaven. As I record this right now, we are very, very close to meeting our first goal on Patreon. So, if you haven't already, please go to our Patreon page, go to interestingtimespodcast.com, click on Support IT on Patreon, and sign up for a monthly donation. If you feel like you get $5 of utility from this podcast every month, sign up for a recurring $5 donation. If you feel like you get $10 worth of utility, 10 bucks. Same thing with 1 or 12. Anyway, sign up, become a supporter. Do that. 
We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash interesting times with Joe Streckert. I tweet at Joe Streckert. Um, also, I am on Tumblr. My Tumblr is my name, joestreckert.tumblr.com. I am deeply creative when it comes to naming social media things. Um, we are on iTunes. Give us a review. Give us a rating. That helps us out a lot. And we're also on Portland's X-Ray FM. We're on X-Ray on Thursdays. You can listen to the show at 9 o'clock and 9.30 and 11 o'clock and 11.30. You can also just go to xray.fm. We appear during the breaks of the Tom Hartman Show. Thank you guys very much for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.